Hey listeners, this is Loam editor Kailea Frederick. Thanks for tuning into Loam Listen with Emilio Freeman. To continue supporting us and showing up as an independent publishing and media company, we are asking for your support. If you enjoy our audio or publishing offerings, please consider visiting our Patreon where you can become a Loam member. For as little as $4 a month, you will receive a monthly curated missive that includes early access to all our publications and products, along with first calls for submissions and other small gifts. Find us at patreon.com slash loamlove. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi there, I'm Amiria Freeman and you're listening to Loam Listen, your home for playful, juicy conversations on how we can reimagine the ways we live and relate to each other to survive and thrive within and beyond this moment. Every episode, join me and heartful spirit for our guests to learn how we can create the loamy soil from which new worlds can bloom. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Twiggy Poochie Garcon. Raised in a Southern religious Black community, Twiggy is a proud non-binary member of the LGBTQ community. As an activist, producer, healer, and creator, Twiggy attributes the balance of struggle and strength they witness and experience early in life to their ability to maneuver through spaces of power and represent for people without. Praising literary greats like James Baldwin to the women in their family, Twiggy is quick to credit their ancestral warriors and pathmakers for the elevation of their own voice in a way that ultimately leads to progress. Since finding support in the barroom community at a very crucial moment in their life, Twiggy leverages every opportunity to generate conversations around equity for LGBTQ young people and create quality spaces for them to be centered in making decisions and solutions around the issue of homelessness. With over 15 years of experience, both personally and professionally, Twiggy has collaborated with artists, filmmakers, academics, and policymakers to increase visibility of both creative and socio-political agendas. Diving deeper into our season on all things birth, I'm taking us to the ballroom scene, an international world of potent beauty, healing, community, and so much more created by Black and Brown queer and trans people. Throughout this conversation, Twiggy and I discuss the lessons we can learn on showing up for ourselves and others and building familial ecosystems from the black and brown queer and trans pathfinders who have found ways to thrive in a world that too often forecloses their futures. Let's get into it with Twiggy. Oh my God, Twiggy, welcome to Lone Listen. How are you? Well, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. And we talked a little bit before recording, and I'm so excited to talk to you about the ballroom scene, the ballroom community, and how it kind of disrupts and expands this notion of family. And I know you're such a vanguard in this space. I'm excited to hear all about your thoughts on how we can sort of like renegotiate what family means to us in the context of like this very queer um sort of like artifact and invention so thank you again for being here i'm holding so much gratitude for you 
Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, I'm excited to converse. First and foremost, for the benefit of the audience, who are you and what do you do? However you want to take that, take it away. Sure. Uh, I'm Twiggy Pucci Garcon. I use she, her, they, and them pronouns. Um, I'm an artist. I'm a producer, choreographer. Um, I am a renaissance person, I guess, of sorts. And um, yeah, I, I do the things that are in alignment with my purpose, whatever they may be in the moment. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I love how you kind of like, I just do everything, girl. I'm doing all the things all the time. But um, yeah, so I mentioned that you're a huge staple in the ballroom scene. Can you sort of break down what that is and how it came to be a little bit? And also how you came into this world? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, the ballroom community is an unautonomously organized community of black and brown LGBTQ plus folks. Um, it was created in the 1920s and 30s in Harlem and originally called the Harlem drag ball scene. Um, it was created for many reasons. Several of those were in resistance to the homophobia and transphobia that was happening from both society, but in particular from the black church. Um, it was for the necessity of creating a safe space for both self and collective exploration of gender and sexuality. And um, yeah, this idea of creating our own family units for ourselves and by ourselves that really underline the importance of, yeah, collective upbringing and collective support. Um, the drag ball scene left New York and spread to Philly and to the Midwest and back down South over the course of the 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, and in the late 60s, actually, very divinely timed alongside the civil rights movement. Um, there was a particular queen, Crystal Abeja, who had had enough of the appropriation and the whitewashing of the drag ball scene that had happened over the course of those decades. And um, sort of storms out of this particular drag ball and reads the other competitors for filth. You can, the scene is very well known in, in this documentary called um, The Queen. Um, there's also been many remixes and songs made from her reads from, the, from that um, scene in the film. Um, but the beautiful thing about that is Crystal, uh, Crystal Labeja is her name, decided to, uh, alongside her family, start a new uh, adaptation and iteration of the scene. And this is when the first house was born, the house of La Beja. Um, and five other queens around those years from 69, I believe it is, to 72 or 74, started the house of La Beja, the house of Extravaganza, the house of La Wong, the house of Brooklyn Ladies, and the house of Dupree. Um, house of Brooklyn Ladies, I think, eventually became a different house. Um, but those are the first five houses um, created by black and brown trans women. There's Crystal Abasia, there's Dorian Corey, there's Ava Spindavis, there's Angie Extravaganza and Duchess Luong. And so the house ball community was born. And similarly, over the, the decades from the 70s to now has expanded and adapted and changed and grown in a number of different ways. It is now a global community of LGBTQ folks and even as we tend to be very welcoming, inviting other folks inside of the scene. Um, it is a place that is still for exploration and affirmation and celebration of uh, a nuanced um, view of gender and sexuality, of self, um, of value, of worth. Um, 
I think the thing, the parts of the scene that people outside of it are most interested in are the competitions, the balls, as we call them, where houses compete in dozens of categories that are all about um, a very systematized belief in like what specific categories are. And so there's face categories about beauty. There's body and sex categories about body and sex iron categories about physique and sex appeal. There's fashion categories about style. There's um, realness categories about passability. There's run- runway categories about walking. There's voguing or what we call performance categories, which are about voguing. Um, all of these happen for trophies, for money, for acclaim, for attention, affirmation, and celebration again. Um, and that's the House and Barroom community in a, I guess, a quick and dirty nutshell. I love that you're just like such an astute, just like historian and archivist of like all of this history. So thank you for that breakdown. And one of the reasons I was so excited to speak with you is that we're both from the Hampton Roads area and you're from Portsmouth, I'm from Hampton. And I was like, okay, so how does one start in Portsmouth and like end up in this scene? Cause when I think about the area, love Hampton Roads, like my mind doesn't immediately go to this specific community. So how did you sort of like find this world and end up just like, I don't know, having this world be absorbed into like who you are and your identity? Yeah, so um, you know that our hometown is um, very Southern. This really unique mixture of country, suburban, uh, mixed together. I wouldn't say it really has any urban tones, if you ask me, but um, or metropolitan urban tones, if you ask me. It's definitely some mixture of country and suburban. Um, and depending on which city, some hood, rat, ghetto shit, you know, some Banji, Banji Angie's in the mix, you know, and some bougie shit happening too. But um, that's pretty much, you know, so pe- folks who aren't from there get a sense of, of, of the area. Um, and also, I think Virginia at large, in particular our area, but Virginia at large has such a huge appreciation for the arts and has birthed so many musicians and artists. There's Missy Elliott, who's from Portsmouth. There's Trey Songz, Chris Brown, uh, Blackstreet, Teddy Riley. Um, I, you know, we, we could, the list goes on. And so um, Virginia is definitely, you know, the state quote is Virginia's a place for lovers. And out of that love, a lot of artists are born. Um, and so I came to the barn scene in 2004. Um, I was still in high school then. And um in this particular time, it was like on the precipice of me coming out. And uh, I danced at a dance studio nearby in Portsmouth, Gail Hart's dance studio. And one of the folks in my studio um, was out already, at, in school at least, and well, period. And specifically recall them voguing between technique classes. And at the time, I had no idea what voguing was, didn't know what ballroom was. Um, but they had danced at the studio for so long that everyone, everyone else there knew. And uh, we happened to go to the same high school and eventually became friends. And uh, parallel, uh, that was uh, parallel to this, that something that was happening at the same time is there's these competitive modeling groups and troops that happened in the DMV area. Um, in the Northern Virginia, DC, Maryland specific area, they're largely associated with like actual troops and like DC Fashion Week and that sort of thing. In the 757, they're mostly associated with HBCUs and home homecoming and that sort of thing. And so 
um, there's always every at every Norfolk State Hampton all had these big fashion shows, and there were these urban um, like streetwear clothing uh, stores that were also like sort of collaborate and like make these fashion shows and walking competitions happen. And I had been doing that since middle school, and so my friend, uh, well, well, became friends, but Sharad, we call him Shushu, knew of me through that. I knew of him through school and through dancing together, and he told me that I should walk runway, like in ballroom. Had no idea what it was, you know, went down a rabbit hole of, at the time, very little I could find on, <laughs> online. And, and I, I was super intrigued as I've always been an artist and a performer. And so I walked my first ball that October after maybe a week of like practicing the difference between like ballroom runway or European runway and like model shoot runway, which is very different stylistically. And working with him, the person who was eventually father. And so I walked my first ball October 2004 and got chopped. And basically for folks who are listening, for at every ball, there's a, before every ball, there's a uh, category sheet that comes out that announces the date, the time, the location, the theme of the ball, and what each category, the look that each category um, requires. And what we call that is the effect. And so when you come to the ball, you are judged for each category on if you brought the look that it asked for and like if you actually have the skill set to perform the category and that's called quote unquote getting your tens and so the judges panel either gives you your tens which means you are allowed to battle or one or more people chop you which means you're disqualified for the remainder of the category and so this particular night i was chopped and disqualified for my category i also you know recognized that i had no business walking the like sort of more senior category within the runway division that I was walking, right? Like there's an actual category for beginners and they were like, child, no, you're good. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, girl, actually, but anyway, got up. It was fine. But I was so enamored by the experience. Like I, to this day, very vividly remember every single moment. I remember driving to Richmond from the 757. I remember being in line at colors, having no idea if this fake ID was going to work. I remember, um, getting dressed like near the bathroom in the corner in the cut. And I remember, um, you know, being at the back of the runway, about to get my tens, not knowing near, knowing the three people who I came with in, in the room and like seeing these people who had been competing and walking for years and years and years. And like, you know what, I'm still do this shit. Um, and of course I was disappointed and, you know, upset that I got shot, but I also like was like, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. Like I, I knew within myself, but you know, it's like, I'm, you know what? I'm that girl and I'm still going to get out there. And, and for the rest of the night, I was really just at the table because one, I had no business being there age-wise. And two, <laughs> my family was extremely protective of me right away for obvious reasons. And three, I was just in awe. It was the first time I had been around that many folks like me. Um, and I was in awe, I was afraid, I was excited. I was going through all these emotions at one time. And so I was just sort of glued to the table. Fast forward two months later, over the course of October through December, I practiced, 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 got trained, got trained, got trained, ended up joining a house. Um, and then I came back and walked a holiday ball actually in the 757 and won. Um, and yeah, I joined the house of Chanel and from there, continued to walk and compete locally for, I would say, another year and a half. I think I started to, between 757 and Richmond over the course of 2005. And then in 2006 and 2007, I started to go to DC and then into New York and Atlanta. Um, and then I moved to New York in 2007, um, left the house of Chanel, went to the house of Miyake Mugler 
for a very short time um, leading up to us creating the house that I've been in since, the House of Comne Garçon. And actually, yesterday was our 13-year anniversary. So um, that's the Cliff Notes version of how I got in the scene. So much happened in between all of that, but here we are <laughs> uh, almost 17 years later. Well, happy anniversary and to your house. And um, I would have, I would have paid to see a young Twiggy just like storm the runways, storm the balls, because I'm sure it was a whole key. So I need to go. Was a key. I had no fucking business walking European runway for the first time at my first ball ever. I should have absolutely been walking Virgin runway, and I might have actually gotten my tens and one had I done that, but. You know, leave it to my friends and family and also me having nerve um, to get out there and embarrass myself. But here we are now and I'm legendary for my category and I teach ballroom history, culture and um, runway, actually, more specifically around the world. So. Oh, my God. So, I mean, the rest is history. Um, so it's written, so it shall be done. And. You touched on us a little bit ago when you're giving an overview of like the community. And um, again, this whole entire episode is about like family. And I'm so interested in how ballroom sort of like reinvents what that even means. And like so many people, I first learned about the community through like watching Paris is Burning as like a baby queer before I came out. And I was like, I'm just so obsessed with how you there are these family units within this community but like they aren't bound necessarily by like biology or genealogy um there aren't like these really rigid gender norms you know you have like houses in this community like these sort of family units you have mothers and fathers of the houses who don't necessarily have to like abide by any sort of like set like gender identities expressions anything's like it's completely revamping reinventing what we think of as a family um, still have like those undertones of like, as a family, we're going to care for each other, support each other, all of that. So I just want to know, like, how has your idea of family as a construct, as an idea, been like completely rearranged by being within this community? How has that adapted and evolved? Yeah, I think it's a very divinely time that, that I came into contact with the ballroom community and the ball scene. Um, at that time in my life, when I met Shushu and, and started Walking Balls and joined the house and Gallagher family, um, which I think it's important to note that like, you don't have to be a, in a house necessarily to be in a quote unquote gay family. Um, that there's a lot of nuance and it can be complicated for folks who are outside of the scene to understand. But I think um, I can break that down a bit. Um, but at that, I'll come, I'll come back to that. But at the, <clears throat> at that particular time, I was, struggling so much personally and in my own life outside of, of uh, you know, hadn't even been in the scene yet and um, struggling with family rejection, struggling with, because um, my family is Southern and Black and religious and so was I. <laughs> and um, so struggling with family, struggling with myself about those things, you know, rejecting myself, having been rejected by my family, having to go to school while I'm figuring out like, 
what my presentation is, what, you know, without having even the language that we have today to describe myself, figuring out what expression is, being made fun of, bullied, even, um, you know, most of my life, actually, most of my younger years, I should say, um, at that point, and on a very deep spiritual level, like having been asked to leave my church because I was too feminine. Um, I was in the choir, I was in the fellowship board, I was a dream missionary, I was in Sunday school. I was like, I did all the things. And at that point, I was actually directing my youth choir and leading my church's dance and my ministry. And I was, you know, pulled into my pastor's office during summer camp that year, same exact year. And, um, and uh, yeah, basically told that I need to turn it down or go. And um, thankfully to my mother who was still, you know, I was at odds with at this particular time about all of it, um, supported me in my choice to leave. And, um, but it was just such a difficult, internally difficult time, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually to like sort of, you know, the place where I found value in myself and worth and uh, affirmation, you know, up until that point to have sort of dismissed it all because of this doctrine that actually, it's a different conversation, but um, because of this colonial doctrine around um, sexuality that is actually misinterpretations. But, um, and so it was a, a, very dark time. And, um, and I had, yeah, sort of become a little bit more distant in this place from my biological family in, in many ways at that time as well. And so, yeah, I always say it was very divine that that was the moment that, uh, you know, Ballroom and I met. <laughs> and uh, you said it earlier, Ballroom has saved so many lives myself as included in that. I'm one of those people. And so that's that part of your question. The other, so the other part of your question, I think, you know, there are house structures and there's gay families and, and, and that feels like it's the same thing, but it isn't necessarily like a house is in, in it is a family and it is also an organization. It's a representation of, of a certain name, of a certain brand that does actually compete in balls, right? Like most specifically. And there are gay families who don't compete in balls at all. Um, there are just nuclear family, chosen family units that don't necessarily compete in balls. And so I think this idea of chosen family, this idea of quote unquote gay family, we use that term more broadly, um, especially back then, um, is around a group of people who choose one another, that um, choose to be support uh, for each other, choose to um, care for one another, choose to affirm and celebrate one another. Really the key point in, in all of that is like gay families choose each other, you know? Um, and there's so much power in that idea of like being a part of a family unit that is not actually attached in this almost obligatory way of like blood or genealogy, but that day by day, moment by moment, month by month, year by year, you choose each other. Um, and so that's the idea of gay family sort of more broadly, more specifically into house and barroom um, structure. It is a type of gay family that happens to be a part of this house and barroom community that competes at the events. And, and for some houses also does other, other work. My, my house in particular, the House of Comme des Garçons, has lots of different divisions. We have people in the house that walk. We have a division called CDG Pro, which is like our activism and advocacy arm. None of those people walk balls. They literally do work in the community on behalf and with the house and with the community. And so... Um, I think every house has a different structure. Um, traditionally speaking, 
it is called a house because of the idea of family. The leaders in the houses are called parents. The members of the houses are called the children. Um, and that gets broken down in, in many different ways depending on the house. It's almost always regional or locale parents who are sort of over that area and oversee that area. And then there's overall leaders um, that sort of oversee the happenings of all the chapters. I'm kind of going off my own script a little bit, but I think I'm so fascinated by the fact that you brought up sort of like how religion was a part of like your own family structure growing up and you keep using the word divine throughout this entire conversation when talking about your experiences, um, the scene, and for the listeners, um, obviously this isn't a visual medium, like Twiggy's wearing all white and it's giving like a very Yoruba vibes right now. So I'm getting the sense that like, the sense like spirituality is very deeply embedded in like who you are. And I assume that's coming out of your upbringing. And I'm like wondering how does like that same sense of like, I don't know, not religiosity, but like spirituality show up for you in ballroom. And why is that so special for you? Yeah, I am extremely spiritual because of my upbringing and I have been able to, and you know, in hindsight and in growing up, um, been able to differentiate the idea of like religion and spirituality. And I think regardless of the fact that that particular religion and the folks that not even the religion, but the people at that establishment, that particular church, like made the decision to um, shun and reject me. Um, and I have my feelings about that particular Christianity and, and that religion also, but this isn't about that. But the point is that what stayed with me is the idea of spirituality. Has, that has always stayed with me and, and been my grounding throughout all of this. And I think spirituality is about seeing, feeling, experiencing, being in your own divinity and being in alignment with that divinity and always knowing that you know that you know that you know that you are connected to some sort of higher power of sorts. Um, and so for me, that shows up in every part of my life, whether that's ballroom, whether that's work, whether that's uh, fun, um, whether it's cooking, uh, travel, you know, it, it, it is everything about every day in my life, I find some sort of spiritual connection to. And so um, to be more specific about ballroom, you know, like I said, in my former practice, when I was in, in Christianity, I was in almost every ministry I could be in at that age. And so I've always been attached to this idea of giving, this idea of serving through ministry. And so I think that hasn't changed because I left the church. Um, I just think that my ministry has, has, has become, the place where my ministry occurs has become ballroom. And so... Um, that looks like a bunch of different things. But yeah, I think that for me, it is that ballroom is a spiritual experience for me and for many other people. Um, I mean, even the idea and the structure of a ball is like a church service. You know what I mean? These groups of people, it's just like any other family comes to church, right? To this, to this space, to this venue. There's... Um, a lot of call and response from the commentator um, and the audience and the person who's performing, which, you know, it's, it's no different than a pastor calling a response to the congregation with, you know, the minister of music, which will be our DJ and the performance is happening, which could be a choir. It could be a dance ministry. It could be a, a person who's given a sermon, right? Like, so there's so many parallels to even the experience of being at a ball to like being in a church service of sorts. Right. And so 
I think the ballroom is innately divine. That's going to sit with me for a long time. Ballroom's innately divine. I love that so much. And on a lighter note, I'm thinking so much more about family now and thinking specifically around inheritance. And with families, so many things get passed down, for better or for worse, you know, names get passed down. Um, pieces of wisdom, even like tangible objects like jewelry and things get um, passed down and inherited. And I'm wondering for you, thinking about the ecosystem of houses that you founded, been a part of, what have been maybe like one or two of the most important things that you've inherited from those communities? Wow, I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, one or two of the most important things I've inherited. I think most, if not all of the things have been esoteric things and like more mes- metaphysical things, if I'm being honest, I think um, perhaps, maybe. I've never been asked this, so I'm just going to think out loud, um, which isn't usually my thing. But um, yeah, I think I've been passed down lots of sort of ideas ideas and principles that will like live in and through me and be passed down. Um, my first gay father who has um, since transitioned, like passed, um, I met him again, like when I was in high school and you're from my hometown. So you know that many of the people from where we're from um, can get stuck, you know, a bit there and like sort of only know that place. And so this idea of a more expansive viewpoint of like thinking beyond like, what is my current circumstance? Um, and where I, where am I currently? And thinking like, not necessarily into the future, but like, what does expansion look like, right? Like upward and outward, um, you know, he pushed me to, towards and, and really into when I was thinking about college, you know, I, I think, I had originally wanted to dance professionally and my parents stopped me from dancing and um, and I just allowed myself to go with it. You know, I think in resistance, I like dance for another year on the low, but like I wanted to actually pursue that professionally and and they didn't allow that to happen. And my, so my attention switched to to fashion. And, and so I like took all the fashion co- classes I could in high school. I actually started my high school's fashion show, which went on for years, even beyond I graduated. And I, and, and, he told me about the school, many of many schools to apply to, but like it was one of the, and continues to be one of the best fashion schools in the country, the Fashion Institute of Technology. And this was in early conversations when I first met him. And um, and so like supported me and into, into like believing that I could, for one, apply, but two, actually get in. So much so that I applied for early admission and got in. And so, you know, I think one thing that I inherited was, yeah, this idea that the cliche version, I would say is anything is possible, but it really is more so about like manifesting the reality you want um, and, and having an expansive viewpoint and not necessarily being attached to how it manifests, but just that like, if you want a thing, you can like make it happen. Um, I think that's probably the most important of the things I've inherited. Thank you so much for that. And I want to end this on one last question around care. Um, I think that kind of gets lost in conversations around ballroom, around um, this like scene and understanding what the story just shared and how like that care is so critical and important because it's like 
you know, this is a scene fueled by and that has been birthed by people who look like us, black and brown people, queer people, um, like other marginalized quote unquote groups, low income people, people living with uh, HIV. And, you know, we can get caught up in like the performance and the theatrics, you know, I love shows like Pose. And for those listening, like Twiggy, yes, yeah, she she does have credentials on Pose. So get into that if you haven't. Um, and I'm so excited for the new season um, of Legendary coming out really soon. Um, but I think this scene is so critical because it is providing so many things that our community hasn't been given. We've been sort of deemed as, you know, not worthy. We've been deemed as not worthy of being given generosity and, and abundance and patience and kindness and all of those things. And so I'm wondering for you, what have you learned about care and what have you learned about showing up for other people through being a part of this community? And I think it's such a relevant question, especially in the midst of like a pandemic and quarantining and sheltering place. I think so many of us have been sort of like, we've never been in a situation like this. Like, how do we show care? How do we show up for each other? But I'm thinking about black and brown people, queer people, trans people, et cetera. It's like, we've been dealing with like these pandemics of like racism, white supremacy, HIV AIDS, like so many other things mm -hmm. for such a long time. And we've built the infrastructure to really deal with these things, including ballrooms. So yeah, for you, how have, how have you, how have you evolved when it comes to how you show up for people, how you care for people, and how has that been informed by being a part of this world and this universe? Um... I don't know that Varum has taught me this this idea that I'm about to say, but I think it's underlined and 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 for pushed me to think through what it means, which is just that it's our duty to care for ourselves and each other, right? Very simple idea. And I think um, what Varum has done has helped me to think through what it actually means to care for myself and to care for other people. Um, what does that look like tangibly? What does it look like mentally and emotionally, um, spiritually even? Um, and so, um, yeah, I think what are the depths of care? What are, our, you know, our, my boundaries around care? Um, because that's the thing, too, um, that we don't talk a lot about. Um, is there such thing as caring too much or too little? Um, you know, the, just the very new, the nuance of it all is are the things that I continue to, and I, and I haven't learned it all. I still continue to learn um, in my journey in the scene. Um, and there's something else you asked that I did not answer. Um, it's the latter part of your question. I don't think I got it, but. No, I think that's great. I think it's just asking about like, how have you involved around your stances on like care and just like showing up for people? Because I think those are two vital skills that so many of us have lacked prior to just like this, you know, pandemic and COVID-19. But I think for so many of us, like, we've had to manufacture so many tools around those things because where else were we going to get it, you know? I think, uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll focus on the boundary piece actually is, is really what, what resonates with me when you, when you ask that. And I think it, it's about, you know, we are often taught to put everyone else before we put ourselves and, 
And actually that it, it actually is completely illogical when you think about it, because how do you do that? Like, how do you pour into someone else when your own tank is empty? And so I think I've, I've like learned that lesson, God knows how many times over, um, both in and out of the scene. And so I think, you know, but really, really specifically in the scene, it's like, you know, we all are put in positions of leadership at some point, whether that's, you know, and, and at many different levels. So that, that's nuanced. But like, I think really the idea of leadership is an idea of service and, and how do you serve other people if you're not serving yourself? And so I think care is a part of that same conversation. Like I cannot care for others when I'm not caring for myself. And what does care for myself look like? Rest, um, paying attention to my body and my mind and my spirit having boundaries you know what i mean like I, I you know i'm i'm very keen on being there for as you know as many people and as often as possible if and when i can you know and i think we have to do a much better job at figuring out what it looks like for us to pour into ourselves first and it's such an individual journey and there's no general way to answer that question and so i think reversing this idea of putting everyone else first, because how, how do you do that when you, when your tank is empty, right? Like how it, it just doesn't, I don't, I actually don't understand how anyone, how you do it. No, I think that's such a resonant conversation. Cause I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that what's so special about, you know, the queer community, ballroom community, however macro micro you want to get, um, you get to choose you know, who you're accountable to. And I think sometimes with like biological family, there is this sense of like deep, you know, obligation, devotion, where it's like, there are no boundaries when it comes to care. You're expected to show up in all these ways that can be really harmful and really toxic. Um, so no, I love that. And I think so many of us have, I mean, thinking more so about myself, how adopt these really toxic ideas around boundaries and care. I think you're supposed to, you're taught to just kind of like pour it out all the time without really resetting, having a period of like rest and fallowness and just like stepping back and allowing yourself to be rejuvenated so that you can be nourished and also just have the capacity to nourish other people. So I think that's such a great tidbit to like leave all of us with, but thank you so much for holding this space with me and this conversation. And for all the people who I'm sure are like, I just want to know more about them. I need to know everything about her. Where can people find you and your work and connect with you? Um, people can find me uh, all over the interwebs, but the main uh, places are Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at Simply Twiggy. Um, my Facebook is my name, Twiggy Pucci Garcon. Um, those are the main three. Awesome. And again, thank you so much. This was so, so amazing. And I'm just excited to be in community with you from here on. <laughs> Likewise, I was really excited to finally find find the time for us. And uh, um, yeah, I just can't wait to share this conversation with, with the world. Thank you for listening to Lone Listen. Again, I'm your host, Amiria Freeman. This episode was edited by Isaac Selk with music provided by Isaac Selk. If you liked what you heard, rate this episode, maybe leave a comment, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss more yummy content. Also, share this episode on social media and with someone you love. Until next time.